Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that matter, that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The next voice you'll hear is that of Sean Spear in conversation with our guest. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by a friend of the podcast, Adam Chambers, who is the Conservative Member of Parliament for Simcoe North and his party's Deputy Shadow Minister of Finance. Last week, MP Chambers introduced a private member's bill, Bill C-289, that would strengthen criminal code provisions concerning money laundering and terrorist financing. He's also recently participated in a joint event between The Hub and the Cardis Institute on generational change in Canadian conservatism. I'm grateful to speak with him about both of these important topics. Adam, thank you for joining us for another episode of Hub Dialogues. It's always a pleasure to be with you, Sean. Let's start with your private member's bill, Bill C-289. In your parliamentary remarks at the bill's tabling, you called Canada a, quote, money laundering paradise. Why did you say that? And what's behind the growing problem of money laundering in Canada? Well, there's a few things that are happening. Uh, The... The facts are that there's about 45 to $100 billion laundered a year, every year in Canada, and that's uh, from some third-party reports, both, uh, both at Transparency Canada International, Publish What You Pay, and others that have been following this very closely. The other is that uh, countries around the world have taken significant steps to deter money laundering in their countries, and so that means criminals are looking for other friendly jurisdictions or those with lax, uh, lax, you know, regulatory regimes. And unfortunately, Canada hasn't kept up with our peers. And so that means these individuals look to Canada as a place to park and hide uh, assets and, and launder their money. The obvious question and follow up is what does your legislation do and how would it improve the government's ability to combat money laundering? The Legislation is quite simple, actually. It's uh, a small amendment to the criminal code, uh, which would make it a significant crime to lie to a what a reporting entity. So think of a bank or an insurance company or, uh, say, a credit union when you're opening an account and you're uh, identifying either yourself or an entity that you that you represent and who the beneficial owners are of that entity. So if you lie uh, in in the process uh, of doing that, as an example, uh, you would then face a fairly stiff penalty, either a uh, uh, 10-year, up to 10 years in jail, and or a million-dollar fine. Uh, Or, of course, uh, it's a hybrid offense, so you could also be uh, given a, a bit of a lesser punishment. But the idea is it gives authorities another tool through which to secure a conviction or to perhaps elicit additional information from uh, one of these individuals, uh, but also having the law itself 
even if it's never used, uh, deters individuals from attempting uh, because they would be scared of of uh, the penalties. And you know, it is it is of course a, a small step, uh, but there are you know many many other steps that need to be taken. But like uh, the saying goes, you eat an elephant one bite at a time, and and this is one. I do think it's complementary, by the way, of of the government's commitment to bringing in a beneficial ownership registry. So this is, I view, goes hand in hand with that proposal by the government that they've agreed to fast track, by the way, so we should see something by the end of the year. And so I was uh, happy to to put this forward uh, with the help of some external parties, of course. We'll come to the broader issue and, and possible other actions to help strengthen Canada's regime with respect to money laundering and terrorist financing. Before we get there, MP Chambers, as you know, private members' bills, especially from opposition members, don't tend to get passed in Parliament. But there is some momentum behind your legislation. It's been praised, for instance, by experts such as Queen's University professor Christian Lieprecht. What's your sense, Adam? Is there reason to think that there could be cross-party support for the passage of your proposed legislation? Uh, it's a great question. I, you know, money laundering itself and, and kind of going after those kinds of criminals, I think uh, you'll find very few people who want to stand up and, and uh, you know, say, defend uh, those individuals who are taking advantage of our weak laws. So I, I have a, you know, I'm very optimistic that I'm going to get uh, cross-party support. I have already engaged members from other parties and in the Senate from from both uh, from multiple caucuses in the Senate and have received some initial uh, kind of initial uh, positive reactions. Uh, uh, the bill will be debated sometime in the fall, which will then it'll be a little bit uh, more uh, known as to kind of where people will fall on it. But I have had some positive reactions from multiple parties uh, within the House. But as you say, uh, it is sometimes a, an uphill battle to get private members' legislation passed, uh, but I'm, uh, I, I am cautiously optimistic. Do you want to just uh, maybe let listeners in to the, the drafting process? Um, you know, I think few people realize the, the limited resources that members of parliament have to carry out their responsibilities as members of committees. Uh, you know, their work within the House itself. And then, of course, all of the, the, the work dedicated to um, the interests and concerns of constituents. So what goes into, first of all, identifying an issue like this uh, and then uh, developing and ultimately putting forward legislation? How did you get to, from the place of problem identification, Adam, uh, to a, a bill before Parliament last week? Well, in terms of problem and identification, you know, if, uh, if aliens were hovering over the, the, the country and looking down, they would think that Canada doesn't have any white collar crime because we have such a low rate of conviction and then also such a low rate of even prosecutions. Uh, very few. Uh, in fact, it was very notable that uh, two individuals from Fortress uh, were charged uh, earlier this week. But that's like the first white collar crime uh, criminal charge that I can remember in quite some time. And so my interest in this was partially uh, driven by my work on the common securities regulator and my previous role with Minister Flaherty and, you know, white collar crime was part of that. So I came in with a bit of an idea, but I wanted to do something on white collar crime. 
and money laundering because of its effects. My, my belief that uh, money laundering drives the demand for housing because a lot of this money ends up in the real property market. And that affects the house prices for everyone by increasing demand, which also affects my own home constituency because we're within a, about a 90 minute drive of the, of, uh, the GTA or of downtown Toronto. And so we've seen significant rises in house prices. In fact, Bank of Montreal singled out Aurelia as having a 300% increase in house prices since 2016, which is just, you know, it really is devastating for those individuals who are, are trying to enter the, the market. Of course, um, uh, those who are already in the market, it's uh, it's a good thing for them and from their perspective. But you know, longer term, that's just unhealthy for you know from the sustainability perspective. In terms of the process, you know, we do not have uh, you know large government departments that support these kinds of ideas. Uh, but I would say I was very very well supported by the legislative drafters. There is a pool of drafters that are available to members and. Uh, you you can get assigned, you know, kind of get a share of of one of those drafters, and you you have a conversation about what you would like to do. They come back with a couple ideas. Okay, you're talking about changing this act. In my circumstance, I had a pretty like I went in with a pretty clear idea about okay, I think I might want to add a provision to the criminal code. Here's what I'd like it to do, and you know, a little bit of a back and forth. My process I felt went very well. I was very well supported and got some great advice. Um, but obviously, not having, say, the same kind of resources as, as the government or a full department, um, you know, things, you know, tend to be either a little bit, uh, you know, maybe not as uh, robust as, uh, you know, budget bill legislation, that's 500 pages, most private members bill legislation is, you know, on a few pages, and mine, I think, probably fits onto one page. Well, it's a credit to you and and the work of your team that you've identified this problem and then produced a a solution, which, as you say, may not be a panacea, but it addresses a particular problem in the broader suite of issues with respect to money laundering. You mentioned in your last answer and and in your remarks in the House last week um, that we, we have this poor record with respect to prosecution and conviction. Uh, that has led the, the BC government to even contemplate establishing its own AML financial intelligence unit um, because it doesn't have confidence that Ottawa can properly regulate for money laundering. Um, beyond your legislation, what other reforms should the federal government be pursuing to regain the, the confidence of provincial governments and Canadians that it can effectively combat money laundering across the country? I found that revelation in the Cullen Commission quite uh, damning, frankly, um, that you have a provincial government as significant as BC, right? It's one of the larger uh, provinces in, uh, in the Confederation, uh, who is questioning the efficacy of the regime. And I think back one of the earlier uh, parliamentary committees uh, at finance, we had the FinTrack, the head of FinTrack presenting, there are... 13 or 14 federal bodies involved with money laundering and kind of, say, white-collar crime uh, in Canada. And that's just the number of federal bodies. And so I suspect what BC is highlighting is a challenge in working with these, you know, a significant number of entities. There's probably some unclear mandates or mission creep happening, or maybe just some, you know, that's not really in my wheelhouse or in my purview uh, going on. And when you have 13 
or 14 individuals responsible for something, I'd argue you probably don't have anybody responsible for the whole process itself. Now, I think the government has talked about starting a new financial crimes unit. I'm interested in that, of course. Uh, but it can't just be a financial crimes unit, say, on the uh, discoverability of or the or, or the, you know, the measures and the uh, the monitoring of money laundering. It absolutely has to include the criminal prosecution and the justice part of it. I think what ends up happening is, you know, FinTrack does a fantastic job of identifying suspicious transactions, uh, but then all of a sudden they kind of get lost in the shuffle throughout these other departments when they kind of get thrown over the wall. And, you know, there are really, you know, there are very complex cases to, to make out. I'd point out that in the, in the United States, you know, most people can name some of the top district attorneys that prosecute these kinds of crimes. You think of Elliot Spitzer, you know, Kenneth Starr, who, you know, you think of some of these large attorneys that have profile in the U.S. that prosecute white collar crime and or, you know, securities uh, fraud. Um, in Canada, I bet you most Canadians, in fact, many parliamentarians don't know who the director of public prosecutions is. And I'm not saying we need to have a U.S. model, but I do think uh, we need to have like very, very dedicated um, prosecutorial resources that that are like housed directly with the investigative resources that can that can see these cases through so that we do get some convictions and and really, you know, send a message that that this is not a money laundering paradise. Um, in fact, some individuals, including Sam Cooper and others at Transparency Canada International, say that Canada's actually promoted around the world as having lax regulatory oversight when it comes to money laundering. So that, you know, it's, it's well known that you're unlikely to be caught in Canada, you know, doing some of this activity. Let me ask just uh, one final question on, on this subject, and then, and then we can move on. You've made a compelling case that there's a need for action, including but not limited to uh, your private member's bill. But as part of such an agenda, how can policymakers ensure that it doesn't come to harm consumers in the form of higher costs and less choice due to the heavy burden of government regulations in, in reporting? In, in other words, Adam, how should we think of the trade-offs between better combating money laundering without overly burdening law-abiding small businesses and consumers? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, uh, the public beneficial registry is, is a, a benefit, especially if it's um, housed centrally. I think we can look at the use of technology to keep costs down. Right? You no longer need to keep uh, significant paper records for some of these things. You know, the advent of of digital technology, of digital um, housing and storage, I think is a significant benefit for consumers. The, the reality is, I think a good question to ask is, what are the costs to consumers now of the money laundering activity? What is the harm of some of this money laundering activity now to consumers? And then weigh that against what, what the burden might be to combat it. Example, you know, some of these funds are a direct result of the fentanyl drug trade. And, you know, we are, we are, you know, allowing fentanyl drug dealers to clean their money in Canada and then purchase our real estate. So not only are they, you know, purchasing real estate and driving up prices for everyone else, they're also providing a drug that's 
that's killing people. And I think that's a significant harm that we have to keep in mind as well when we think about what, you know, some of these regulatory burden issues would be in, in combating it. And I think the trade-off seems relatively worthwhile, especially if you can use technology to keep costs low. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca, and sign up for our daily email newsletter, Per Diem. Each morning at 7 a.m. Eastern, in your inbox, you'll receive the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors, all curated for you based on the issues and ideas that are moving the public conversation. Sign up now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. Those are great answers. Thanks for your insight. And we'll certainly be following the progress of your legislation over the coming weeks and months. You, you mentioned that your interest in these issues in part is due to growing concerns from younger Canadians about high housing prices. Uh, you recently participated in a Hub Cardis event on generational change in Canadian conservatism. And you made an interesting set of comments about the relative usefulness of the Federal Conservative Caucus compared to the Trudeau cabinet. I should say, if listeners are interested, this event was the subject of a hub of hub reporting on June 23rd. Why don't you just reflect on these generational differences between the parties and how you think they may come to be reflected in politics and policy moving forward? Well, you know, I'll give full credit uh, both to you, Sean, but also for Cardis for hosting that event and kind of giving a platform to discuss, uh, you know, issues facing young people and it's interesting. Uh, it wasn't until you pointed out to me that that if you looked at the relative ages of, of caucus members, both in the you know the government Liberal Party and then of, uh, in our party, the Conservative Party, we actually have a significant number of people that were say born after you know 1975 or 1980. Um, we have a significant number of individuals in kind of shadow cabinet portfolios that that are in that cohort, and if you compare that to the current government, you know, those that would be in, in cabinet portfolios or on, on the front bench, there, there's actually a very few uh, representatives from that uh, demographic. You know, far be it from, from me to, to uh, or, or conservatives generally to, to talk about identity politics. It's just an interesting fact, right? And then I think you can say, well, okay, what policies, like, is there a policy shift um, happening at the conservative party? Uh, interestingly, for the first time in, for whenever I can remember, uh, the Conservative Party is actually polling higher outside the statistical uh, margins of error in the 20 to 29 category and 30 to 39 category. Now, I think a lot of that has to do with house prices, no doubt. But, you know, I do think, you know, people will start to see younger people reflected. They are reflected in the Conservative caucus. And so, you know, that's uh, I think that's a positive thing. Um, obviously, it's a it's a growing cohort in terms of the number of people voting, and I, I think it's a good thing for the party. Just as an aside, according to Hub reporting, there are three times as many millennials occupying shadow cabinet positions in the Conservative caucus as there is within the Liberal cabinet. So, as you say, um, these developments aren't merely a matter of perception; they're also empirical. You mentioned recent polling that shows that the Conservative Party is performing well with some of these younger cohorts. And you, you talked a bit about 
some of the possible explanations. I would just ask you to elaborate on, on what you attribute these trends to. Have young Canadians suddenly become conservatives? Let's talk about some of the big issues facing young people. House prices is the obviously one of the biggest, right? I, I mentioned 300% increase in my riding, but it's been at least a double doubling of house prices since 2015. Uh, remember that the current government campaigned on making housing affordable in 2015, like that they did a couple announcements based on that. Uh, the government also campaigned on, you know, the Liberals campaigned on um, decriminalizing marijuana. Th- they've done that already, right? So uh, I'm not really sure there, you know, there's much left to do on that file. Uh, uh, and finally, I think, you know, happenstance and just look at what's happened the last two years with COVID and lockdowns, and I've said this before, but, you know, the governments and governments around the world asked young people to put a pause on their life, to, you know, make significant sacrifices for the betterment of elderly individuals and the betterment of the community. Look, we, we asked everybody to do this, but in particular, I, it was a, a serious um, ask of young people because uh, the virus represented a very low risk to, to young people. And I, I've said, you know, what's the thanks that young people get? Well, after two years of this, they reemerge from lockdowns and they find that they're now responsible for a significant amount of government debt, right? The government doubled the debt and they can't afford a house. So I think they're kind of frustrated. Uh, you know, we, they did what we asked them to do, what the government asked them to do. And now uh, they're frustrated. And separately, the final one is beyond the environment. I think if if the environment is the number one issue for you as a young person, I'm not sure that the current government's even meeting them on that measure either. So I think I think young folks are just kind of saying maybe they don't see themselves being reflected or their values being reflected in this government uh, as they thought they might have been. And at least two out of those three on say, COVID lockdown measures and or kind of, say, call it small F freedom measures and on housing prices, conservatives have actually been talking about those things very much over the last number of while. And I think that's reflecting in the polling. You know, your insights, Adam, about some of the intergenerational trade-offs that were made in the pandemic and the extent to which that may produce something of a kind of generational identity amongst younger voters that could manifest itself in our politics is something you raised at the Hub Cardis event earlier in the month. And I'm glad you raised it here. I think there's a, a, a ton of insight that we'll have to have you back on the program to talk about further. But I, I want to, you mentioned small F freedom. Let, let me pick that point up. We've witnessed a series of government failures in recent weeks and months, including the failure to anticipate rising inflation, as well as extraordinary lineups at airports and passport offices. To what extent do you think these developments may push younger people to conservative ideas about limited government and away from progressive preferences for a larger, more activist state? Well, you hit it. I mean, they are failures. And I think that's what forces people then to reconsider or reevaluate oh, well, maybe maybe there is a better way. And what is that better way? They're actually just open to kind of hearing an alternative view. And so, look, if the airports were running fine and the passports were, were uh, being issued and there were real no other massive failures, then I think people wouldn't be so frustrated. But, you know, 
I don't know for your listeners that have traveled or your listeners to have uh, looking for a passport, we applied for my son's passport in, in March and we still don't have it. Uh, and I'm just curious to see how long it kind of takes through the normal system. But in terms of, you know, what that means for, for say conservatives or small C conservative ideas, what it does is it gives uh, the party an opening to talk about some solutions because people are frustrated. So we can present an alternative. Uh, frankly, the government tries to say, well, look, you know, we've doubled the amount of spending or we've hired more people. Well, we're spending more and, and getting, getting less. We're actually getting worse results. Um, maybe there is a better way. Maybe we should actually look at making some of these things more streamlined. As an example, if people were not applying for passports during the, um, during the kind of period of, of lockdowns and reduced travel, what a brilliant time to have been looking at digitizing that process. You know, we're being told now that, well, there was not many people applying for passports and now they're just, they're all coming back because they want to travel. Well, I mean, we could have used that time to think about making the, the process better, to make the process simpler. I think people are open to uh, the message that we can make government simpler. We don't necessarily always need to make government better because what is better? Let's just make it simpler. And I think that's a, a notion that, that conservatives can really latch onto. Uh, you know, filling out the paperwork, et cetera, waiting in lines. I mean, geez, you feel like you're queuing for everything these days. And now the solution, by the way, is uh, you're going to queue in the morning at a passport office to get a ticket in line, to come back to queue later <laughs> to get into the building, then at which point you need to queue again to wait to get served. So it's it's a lot of, uh, it's a lot of you know, a bit of a mess. I feel bad, frankly, for all the frontline workers um, and those individuals that have to go through this. Um, I've been in these kind of operational issues before where, you know, the fixes end up making stuff worse and the exception process kind of gets out of control. But, you know, uh, we do need to kind of rethink how we do these things from a total operational perspective and really just say, how can we do this in a simpler way? And conservatives should be bringing those ideas to the table. Historically, a countercultural politics is often been perceived as a left-wing phenomenon. One in search of a, a counterculture identity in the past would have probably rebelled against the conservatism of one's parents or the broader society. Yet in today's milieu, in which most mainstream institutions, including corporations, universities, and the media, tilt left, it's increasingly countercultural to be on the right. What do you think of that formulation? And if you broadly agree with it. How can conservatives, Adam, appeal to these countercultural instincts without changing their character, including giving way to a protest culture that has tended to be associated with the left? One, I generally agree that, you know, the counterculture kind of movement now is kind of to be, say, on the, the, the center right of things. By the way, you don't have to be very far right of center to be called far right now. <laughs> Everything's moved very far left. I also think, and I'll come back to the point earlier about, you know, why there's some younger people that are now being drawn to the conservative party. I actually think on some school campuses now and uh, in some other venues, young people are kind of saying, like, maybe I don't agree with all of the kind of new in vogue wokeness that's happening. And, you know, maybe, you know, those individuals that, you know, mostly just thrive on avocado toast and granola. Like they're, I think they, they would say, 
you know, maybe we can have some intellectual diversity. Why, why do we always have to give in to kind of this kind of the, the mainstream movement here? And so I think that's another reason why, why folks are being open to the party. So how do you give into it without, you know, encouraging protest culture? I think it's really just that. It's about, it's about saying diversity matters. Uh, it also includes intellectual diversity. And I think we should be concerned about uh, intellectual conformity. And I think, I think some of that counter-protest is actually pushing back against intellectual conformity. And that's where I think we should be focusing our time and efforts. This isn't about, you know, having protests and shutting down people that we don't want to hear from. This is about making sure that, that actually differing views can be debated and discussed there's some like really troubling evidence that a lot of people don't feel comfortable expressing their opinion now because they're not worried about they're not worried about the right wingers coming after them. They're actually worried about people on the left because they're not progressive enough. They're not woke enough. And I think that that ultimately will open an opportunity for you say small C conservatives or or moderate conservatives to say, "Hey, listen, we actually it's okay to disagree with people. It's okay to have a debate. It's okay to have, you know, uh, two people on stage discussing an issue that don't have the same opinion. And I think people are starting to either miss that or want that in their discourse. And so, I th- again, I think that's an opportunity for, uh, for the party or for uh, conservatives in general. MP Chambers, you've been so generous with your time. Let me just wrap up with a final question. You were elected in, in 2021, early next fall. You'll mark your, your one-year anniversary as a, a member of our national parliament. What's the most surprising thing that you've learned in your first several months as a parliamentarian? I had experience in Ottawa before, and and uh, so I wasn't new to the city. So, so that was, um, you know, didn't have a learning curve there. I've learned that there's a lot of kind of collaboration that happens amongst party members, um, you know, kind of off the hill, if you will, whether you, you know, have dinner with, with people, you know, many of us stay in the same hotel from multiple parties and we tend to get together um, at the end of the night, people kind of roll in and, you know, you form relationships with these individuals. And I think at the end of the day, all members of parliament, like there's a human behind each kind of, you know, chair there, right? And, uh, you know, everybody has their own interests and they're here for, I think everybody's here for the right reasons. But I think what people don't always see is some of the collegiality that happens kind of, you know, when the cameras are off. And in fact, I've had some really great success working with uh, with an NDP member of the finance Commi- uh, committee, Daniel Blakey, and, and as well as my my block uh, my block colleague. In fact, we significantly amended um, budget legislation both just just this spring, but also in in the fall. And I think we ultimately made the legislation better. But I think you know, in terms of amending, say, budget legislation, it's quite rare to have legislation like that amended at committee. Uh, but we worked very well together to make that happen. So. You know, there is there is some uh, for those of you who are, are worried about, uh, you know, the demise of parliament and, you know, democracy. There, there are a lot of great people here that want to do the right thing. And, and, and there are some shared values that uh, many people can work together on across parties. That's a great point to wrap up on. MP Adam Chambers, the conservative member of parliament for Simcoe North and his party's deputy shadow minister of finance. Thank you for joining us today at Hub Dialogues and good luck with the continued stewardship 
of Bill C-289, your private member's bill that would strengthen the criminal code concerning money laundering and terrorist financing. Thanks, Sean. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Maybe it expanded your horizons, opened your mind to some new thinking and ideas. Please don't forget to share this episode with your friends and family. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and review. That would be greatly appreciated. I'm The Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, The Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. Our audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. Thanks for listening. 